Welcome to the Horse.com's Asavat Live. I'm Michelle Anderson, Digital Managing Editor of the Horse.com. Tonight's topic is an introduction to equitation science, and it's brought to you by the Horses Behavior Newsletter. We are joined tonight by our experts, Haley Randall and Dr. Dr. Haley Randall and Dr. Ingo Wolfram. Um, and these ladies are joining us. It's really late way where they are, each of them. Uh, Inga and Haley, welcome. Hi. Thank you, Michelle. <laughs> yeah, thank you. So I want to thank you guys so much for joining us because I know that you set your alarms to wake up early, early in the morning um, in the Netherlands and the UK to join us. So thank you so much for doing that and allowing us to do this event live. Um, I want to go ahead and introduce you guys to our audience. Healy Randall is a PhD. She runs undergraduate and graduate equitation science programs at the Equitation Science Academy at, is it, how do you pronounce your college? Um, it's Dutchy College. Dutchy College in the yep. United Kingdom. Um, and that's in conjunction with Plymouth University. Yep. Uh, and Inga Wolfram is a PhD as well. She is a senior lecturer at the University of Applied Sciences, Van Hall Laurenstein in the Netherlands, where she supervises research projects related to psychology um, and socio-psychology and visual attention and equitation. Uh, she earned her master's degree in human and equine sports science and completed her doctorate studying sports psychology in equestrian riders. Additionally, she is also an accredited sports psychologist. Welcome, Dr. Wolfram. Thanks very much, Michelle. So I want to start out by asking each of you how you became interested in the field of equitation science. And in a little bit, we'll get to exactly what equitation science is, because it's not something that we in the U.S. are necessarily familiar with on a daily basis uh, with our horses. So starting with you, Haley, how did you get started in equitation science? Well, um, to begin with, my, my PhD was actually on, on cows, um, and I worked on a farm where there were there were horses. They had an Arab stud as well. Um, and that was uh, run by a scientist called um, Dr. Mark Kiley Worthington, who everybody thought was, was quite mad and quite kind of off the wall because her research ideas were way ahead of the sort of the rest of the world. Um, and I just fell into horses, really, through, through her and ended up buying one of her horses. And then we got into the whole thing of how horses learn and so on. And really, it's just, it's just gone, from, gone on from there um, working with colleagues to do with animal welfare and just relating to how horses learn and so on. So I could take up the whole hour if I say any more, really. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, well, we'll pass it over to Inga. Inga, how did you get involved in equitation science? Well, really, uh, I, I've always competed uh, ever since I was little. Uh, first of all, I, I used to do gymnastics on horseback, vaulting, that's called, and uh, and then, then I competed a bit in dressage and show jumping. Uh, but what interested me most of all was really the rider, and especially the rider psychology angle. And that's what I focused on, first when I did my master's and then when I did my PhD. And, and once once I had that, then I sort of came across ISIS, so the International Society for Equitation Science, and and really sort of found my niche there, focusing primarily on the rider and, you know, and, and focusing on what the rider can add when he or she is training horses. So this, yeah, so really for me, it's all about the rider, and then there will come seconds, if you like. <laughs> um, so... 
I'm really excited about this conversation because this is a topic that I've been looking forward to all year, us doing, um, because I really love to know why our horses do what they do. And then I guess also, Inga, from your perspective, why we as riders do what we do when we're with them. Is that correct? Yes, absolutely. Yes, absolutely. Because that's, you know, we sit on top. So I always think that we have to be in control first and then we can try and train our horses in a way that's, you know, ethically correct and applies to equine welfare. Excellent. So for everyone who's listening live, uh, we have received questions ahead of time and we'll be going through those questions as usual. I want to encourage everyone during the next hour to also send in your questions for Inga and Haley. Um, they're excited to answer anything that you send our way. Um, you can do that uh, via your browser right in front of you. Well, if you're listening, you should be able to send in questions live. So please go ahead and do do that as we go. Uh, for now, let's go ahead and get started. And our first question is from uh, Emil in Texas. And Emil says, I am new to horses. I'm over 60 years old. What is equitation science? And this is probably something that a lot of our audience is asking. Uh, Haley, what is equitation science? Well, um, equitation science is basically um, an emerging academic discipline. Um, I say emerging, but we've been around for quite a while now. And it's really looking, as its name suggests, at the science of riding um, or equitation. So it includes in-hand work as well as ridden work. Um, and really what it's about is ensuring the welfare of the horses um, through the horse-human interaction. It has two main focuses, really, um, and that's the training aspect, understanding learning theory and how horses learn but also looking at the interface between the horse and the human in terms of the equipment we use and the messages that we send through through doing that. And um, just to kind of pick up on what Engel was saying, um, you know, with, with a focus on the rider, in, a, in many ways the rider is a tool as part of the equitation process as well. So a lot of what the rider does is giving messages, obviously, to the horse as well. So we're, we're looking at, um, at that as well. Okay. And Haley, what do we know about how horses learn? And, and how is that different or the same as how humans learn? And Inga, maybe you can jump in into the second part of that question. Well, I think the thing that we need to remember is, well, there's two things really. First of all, the horse is a mammal, like many of the other um, species where you know, we're interested in, in how they learn. So they're set up in a certain way. Um, the other thing is, is that it's, it's a bit of a word of warning, really. A lot of people in their training make assumptions about the horses, you know, be able to understand every, absolutely everything that we think we might want to do with them. So they, they basically learn using learning theory, just like any other species. However, their brains are a little bit different than, than the human brain. He's basically built to run and coordinate four legs, whereas we are kind of built to coordinate two. Some of us do better than others, and that's, that's an area for Inga too. Um, and my, it's a concern, really, is that with, quite often people will assume that the horse can do certain things sort of um, cognitively, in other words, intelligence-wise, but actually his brain's not decide, designed to actually do. So he is similar, but he's different. Okay. And Inga, do you have anything to add? Well, the way I always put it, really, is that um, horses are reactive and people are reflective. So 
in, in many ways that means that we as people have slightly higher cognitive abilities and, and there is a, no moral judgment attached to that in the sense that oh we are better because we can think differently that that's not the way i mean this but you know horses react and, and that's what's helped them to survive but they don't necessarily think about themselves as an individual what they want what their motives might be but people do and that's the big difference you know while we might want to go to a show and do well because we think then other people will think more highly of us a horse couldn't really care less and i think that's you know that's the key aspect and that's also what Haley just said you know sometimes mm -hmm. we might get on and we think oh the horse really wants to perform the horse doesn't really care it's the rider who wants to perform or thinks about what that might mean. And I think that's the difference. Horses are reactive, people are reflective. So I obviously work for a horse magazine and, and a horse website, and I know from the data that I see that, or I can guess, I would bet on uh, three out of four people listening right now are women. Um, Inga, Katie and Aya wants to know why the horse industry seems to be um, predominantly made up of women. Do we have any scientific or sociological information about why women seem to be drawn to horses especially? Well, you see, incidentally, it's quite an interesting fact that the fact that the horse industry is indeed predominantly made up of women, that that is true, but it's only been true really for the past 50 or 60 years. Really, before the 1940s, 1950s, really after the Second World War, the horse industry was absolutely dominated by men. And and if we look back over time, now that's quite a lot more history where where men used to be the the people really that that got involved with horses uh, compared to women. So really, in the past 50 to 60 years, really when we're talking about a, a period where women came more to the fore sociologically, you know, we were, we are allowed to vote now, we're allowed to hold jobs that are equal to men, that kind of thing. So you might even call it a feminization theme. That's really the time when, ho when women also got more involved in horse sports. So then, so when you ask me, so do we have any information as to why that be? Well, actually, the funny thing is there's very contradictory evidence. There's one side that says it's because women are more nurturing and that's why they like to be involved with horses, you know, they like to cuddle them. And that's perhaps also why we see more women engaged in grassroots level because once you look at the top level, at the top level of competition, you find that there's more men involved. Um, in dressage, it's equal or perhaps slightly more women, but in all the other, in all the other, other disciplines, there'll be more men. But then there's also the other side that says, well, actually, uh, women derive self-esteem from getting involved with horses. They think it's really tough. Um, it's sort of the cowgirl image. So to be honest, you've got both. You've got, you've got one side that says it's because women are more nurturing. That's why they like to be involved. The other camp says, well, it's actually because it's a cool image to have. It's really tough. You have to be independent. You need to think on your feet. And that's what women find attractive because, because perhaps in the past 50 or 60 years, we as women are actually able to do just that, be independent. So so there you go. So that's probably a bit of a non-answer, but there's lots of information in there. It's, it's definitely an interesting topic of conversation, I think. Um, Haley, our next question is for you, and it's from Lisa in Washington. And Lisa 
asks for you to please provide a framework of how the horse's nervous system responds when they are in a state of fear. And she also wants to know if horses can suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder. I think I have a horse that I think has post-traumatic stress disorder. (laughs) 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 Is is that possibly something that my horse is experiencing? Um, well, well, yeah, it, it, it could, it could, could be sort of inverted commas. Perhaps if we answer the first bit and then leading on onto that one, um, what what happens when the horse um, is in um, a state of fear? It's it's very, it's a very simple physiological mechanism which actually we all all experience. Um, part of the nervous system called the sympathetic nervous system kicks into action, and it's all about preparing the body for for stress so certain parts of the body close down um, which actually enables other bits to sort of really kick in and for a horse it would be to stimulate either the flight um, mechanism or the or the or the fighting mechanism now generally in our context with the riding and so on it would be the the flight and the sort of behaviors that we know and probably don't like like bolting the running off and those sorts of things um, so it is is a physiologically mediated system and you know when you're sat on a horse and a horse goes into that mode it's quite scary because you know that actually it's something that's happening from from within the animal and of course we we can train responses to sort of overlay all of those sorts of things but at the end of the day your your horse is is a flight um flight animal it's prey species um so sort of just just to go on to the next bit can they suffer from ptsd this this is an area that I'm really interested in. I've, I'm really interested in the psychology um, or the psychological syndromes that we know exist in humans and can they be applied to, to horses. And I think increasingly we're seeing lots of uh, magazines, you know, where people write and say, my horse does this, please help. Lots of people are saying, oh, yes, it's, your horse is suffering from things like learned helplessness and PTSD and so on. But people don't always necessarily really understand what those things are. Um, I think it's possibly possible um, that horses may suffer from PTSD, but I will say I don't think we have any proper scientific evidence to suggest that that actually um, is the case. With PTSD, what what you're actually getting is um, a fear-mediated response where the horse reacts in a defensive way. um, And, you know, it is a very serious mental health-type condition, the nearest thing where we've actually got evidence, and there's a study that's not been published yet um, in military working dogs, um, it's actually a US um, piece of work that's going on, and um, they found that between 10 and 15% of the um, dogs that have gone to Iraq or Afghanistan are actually showing sy- symptoms of PTSD on coming home. So. I think that it would be really interesting to sort of take some of the approaches that they've done there to sort of assess the behaviour there and see if that does apply to, to our horses. Um, there, there is something else that I think could possibly be more likely than PTSD, which is PDSD, um, which is something emerging in the human literature, and it's called prolonged duress stress disorder, where a whole series of sort of prolonged stress is actually showing similar signs to PTSD, where you can't actually say this particular event caused caused the, the reaction, but just a whole series of stresses. And I think in the human world these days, we do have so many things that just go on top of each other 
to cause stress in inverted commas that but I think actually that might be more likely in some of the training scenarios we have today with our horses. Okay. So I'm not sure if that was an answer at all, but a mini lecture. <laughs> um, but I, I, I think as far as PTSD itself, we we haven't really got any proven cases. Um, but I wouldn't sort of say absolutely no. Okay. And I have a follow-up question on that for Inga. I know that um, with two of my horses, if I get fearful, my horses seem to get super fearful. Is is our fear as riders? Do we truly convey that to our horses when we're when we're riding? Well, that's a really interesting question, and a few research articles have looked at what happens when the rider is fearful. And they looked at heart rates of the human, and then they look what happened to the horse. And, and indeed, um, if a rider is either riding or leading a horse. Their heart and their heart rate is increased because they're thinking something's about to happen. Incidentally, in, in that particular research study, what they did is they threatened the rider with opening an umbrella at the end of a runway, which they never did because of ethical reasons, because something might really have happened. But the riders didn't know that, so they were really worried, how is my horse going to react? Their heart rate increased, and as a result, that's what we think, the horse's heart rate also increased. On the other hand, this is quite interesting. This is this is a research study that you also just recently published on your own website on, on thehorse.com. Um, researchers also recently tested what would happen if you put people who were afraid of horses, who had no experience with them whatsoever, and you put them together uh, with horses in a round pen, how did those horses react compared to people that weren't afraid? And what was seen there was that they weren't really interacting in any way, shape, or form. But in, in those scenarios, the horses, when they were together with fearful individuals, didn't react. So what does that tell us? I think that tells us that horses can't read our minds, but they can read our bodies. So when we're engaged with horses, when we are worried ourselves, what happens, we get tense. And I'm sure we're going to come to this at some point or other. I mean, essentially, equitation science, learning theory, is all about transmitting to your horse the cues, um, in a, or, so your aids, really, in a consistent manner. But if you yourself are worried or scared, it's almost impossible to be consistent to, the, to how you would normally be when you're nice and relaxed. And that actually causes confusion in the horse. So that's, to be honest, that's probably one of the most effective ways to explain why our horses get so tense hmm. when we are tense. Because they're actually reacting to the fact that all of a sudden we're not giving them the signals that we used to give them. Because we are tense, um, our bodies get tense, we behave differently. And the horse goes, not that they're really thinking that, but the horse essentially reacts to that and goes, What's the matter? What am I doing wrong? Am I supposed to be doing something different? And that quite often can cause stress and aggravation. Okay. Um, our next question is for you, Inga, and it's from Justine in Salem, Oregon. And she says that she has been reading and she read an overview of equitation uh, science and that the topic seems to cover ethics with horses. What is her role as a horse owner in being ethical? I actually think this is also a very nice follow-on, uh, follow-up question to what Haley's just discussed. And really, what I think the role of horse owners is is to provide horses uh, with an environment that is 
ethologically sound so that horses are actually able to be horses. You know, we all know that they can feel and that they can react to the stresses around them. So what we as, as horse owners should do is provide them with an environment that they're able to lead um, the lives that, that they are supposed to be leading. So, you know, having contact to conspecifics, so to other horses, allowing them to um, have access to pasture, to, you know, 24 hours uh, forage preferably, to be able to walk around, not be confined in a stable for 24 hours, those kind of things, because that is how the horse ethologically has evolved. So, you know, if we choose to keep horses, we must make sure the environment is such that they can be horses. So Haley and Inga, you can jump in too uh, with this follow-up question, but if we as horse owners are limited in, in the decisions that we can make for our horses, maybe we can't have them on pasture 24 hours a day, or there are certain things that we want to do for them that our schedule doesn't allow, how do we prioritize what's best for our horses? And Haley, I'll start with, with you on that one. I, th- I think really... Um you know, we obviously have to do do the best we can. You know, saying saying the the obvious thing really. Um, I I think um, I mean Inga's really started answering that question with with the previous answer really. Um, if I mean an ideal situation, we could give the horses the the choice about whether they go in or go out or or, or whatever. But you know, obviously there's always physical constraints and reasons why you. You do that over here. A lot of us um, will actually be renting land to keep our horses on, and, and you know the, the farmers or whoever may say, "Well, you can only have access for a certain amount of the time, and if it's raining, they have to stay in," and and things like that. Um, I I think at the end of the day, you do have to remember that you know the horse is a prey species. He's built to be moving all the time um, in in a relatively big space, and just try to provide as much uh, of that sort of um, environment that you can. I mean, at the end of the day, we're governed by the five, um, the five freedoms, the, the sort of basic tenets of welfare. And I would always argue, if you can't really provide for those sufficiently, then maybe you should question about whether you do actually keep a, a horse um, or not. Um, that sounds quite harsh, but I, I think it's better to be able to do it appropriately than not to be able to do it appropriately. If that makes sense. Um, I think one of the one of the other one of the big things with that is the reason or the the ability to keep the horse in, um, you know, with companions and so on. Because um, keeping horses on their own can cause lots of problems. Um, so yeah, it 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 is a difficult one. It's probably the biggest question that a lot of us have to ask ourselves about the way we keep our horses, ideally 24/7 out, um, weather permitting and so on. Um, but, you know, we always have to balance the needs of 101 different things there. So, Inga, did you want to add anything to? No, I think yeah. you've taken the words right out of my mouth. <laughs> it's so difficult, <laughs> that one. It is. It's incredibly difficult. I mean, it, if you like, you know, we're not all able to. I mean, I, uh, you know, I live in the Netherlands where land is very scarce. So, indeed, you have to juggle the fact that they, you know, now we're moving into the winter here and then land is limited because because it is so limited so we really need to keep um, the land from recovering for the next summer. So, it, so you know, so we have to try and make sure that the horse goes in the walker, that they go into paddocks, that they're being ridden um, regularly, that they're being exercised daily. 
So yes, it's a juggling act, but I also agree with Hayley, companionship, if you don't keep them on their own, really, if at all possible. Yeah, and I have a horse that's especially nervous, and after reading some of the research um, that that the different equitation scientists have done and listening to some of of both of your lectures, uh, I created a happiness plan for him. And part of that happiness plan was to turn him out with one of my other horses because I kept all my horses separate um, because they're the one's a show horse and I wanted his coat to be beautiful. And so I have sacrificed his beautiful show coat for my other horse's happiness. (laughs) Um, Is that... Is that something that you see horse owners juggling more as we learn more about what, what the horses need? I think, um, first of all, Michelle, I think that's brilliant. And I, I wish, you know, sort of not talking Ill, Ill of anybody, but I wish more people would, um, do you know, do that sum in their head and say, actually, in terms of the overall welfare of both of your horses and also your needs as well, it's worth making that inverted commas sacrifice because... You know, you're you're helping all everybody concerned in in the equation, and I I think people are questioning some of their practices these you know these days. And actually, as more information comes out, particularly in equitation science, one of our really big drives is it's all very well having the great, brilliantly designed academic work, and there is increasing amounts of that, but it has to translate to the user, and not three or four years' time, but when you know when a finding has been published it needs to be made relevant and in the context of of horse owners almost immediately and that's why you'll probably see that in in any of our um the abstracts that go with our conferences they always have a paragraph at the bottom which is what we call sort of layperson speak so that people can understand exactly what we're doing and go make the changes for the horses it's kind of it's knowledge transfer but quick so I think that's, that's a good example there of how that's been happening. Our next question is along the same lines of a single horse at home. Um, and Haley, this is from Alice in Virginia. And, and she was asking about some things that we've already responded to. Should horses be with other horses? But if a horse is alone, is human companionship enough for them? Or will they bond in a different way to their human if they don't have other horses? Um, I, I'm not aware that this, this is anything that sort of have specific re- research in terms of the nature of the bond comparing it with whether a horse has got other horses or just just a human my, my kind of gut reaction to to that sort of thing and I get asked that quite a lot is it's probably better for the for the horse to have at least some other form of non-human um, sort of companionship whether that's something like a you know, I'm thinking like a goat in the Great Sea Biscuit story, or a sheep, or or something like that. Because I think a non-human possibly doesn't put the same demands in a relationship, and I don't just mean you know with the riding and that, um, as as perhaps a human might. Um, that's probably something that you know Inga, you might want to add in uh, you know in terms of the the human's kind of need for the relationship with the horse as much as as much as anything. I mean, that's, that's completely not grounded in any research that I'm aware of, but that's just my, my gut feeling, sort of observations over over the years. Well, I guess there's always the danger also of anthropomorphizing on the part of the human. Mm. You know, if there are no other horses around, and 
um, the human only has that one horse to connect with, the tendency for us, and I think that's perhaps also one of the biggest dangers really, is because we love our horses. I mean, we all do, otherwise we wouldn't have them. But because we love our horses and we think, we think we're friends with horses, we tend to associate their needs with ours. So just to put it really simplistically, oh, it's, it's getting colder, so I must make sure I put a thicker rug on my horse. But the horse might not actually need that rug because they, you know, their coat structure is very different to our, our skin and, and how we perceive cold versus how a horse perceives cold. Um, the same thing is, you know, uh, human beings generally... Um, we show our affection quite frequently through food, you know, cooking elaborate meals for family, etc. And so then the notion might be, okay, oh, you know, he's looking really lonely. I'll just go out and treat him some treat and, and treat him with some treats. Um, treat him to some treats. Uh, so essentially, but what you get then is that the relationship, for all intents and purposes, becomes too human, and that can be very stressful and that really is in line with what we've discussed before that ethologically speaking a horse has different requirements to a human yes and i think that also um is is placing possibly unreasonable expectations on that horse as well yeah which sort of takes us yeah, right absolutely. back to the very first question in in this um thing as well doesn't it yeah so our next question is for Inga, and it's from Virginia in Durango, Colorado, and she says that she's a big advocate of equitation science. She wants to know what your personal experience has been with how it's been received with the general mainstream horse owners. <laughs> Mixed. <laughs> um, and I guess Haley's also already answered this to some extent when she said how important it is that a lot of the scientific uh, the scientific knowledge that that's being translated uh, into more common daily language uh, rather than simply being contained in very complex scientific articles, because that, I think, is, is one of the things that's most off-putting, that a, a lot of, you know, a lot of horsemen and women, they might think that, okay, uh, a lot of this research has just been not quite, but designed in a lab, you know, and it, it doesn't bear any resemblance to real life. And in, in that sense, it might be a bit of putting and they might think, but, you know, I've been keeping horses all my life and, and the, I've always done it this way. Um, so thus, my way is the best way. And equitation science in many ways, because it is, it is a research discipline, an academic discipline, might put people off because they might think, oh yeah, it, you know, it doesn't really stem from real life examples. And I think here our role is, to try and show that actually what we're trying to do is we try and take daily issues in equine training and look at it uh, from a, from an objective perspective and examine it without any moves and emotions involved, if you like. Um, horse riding, equestrianism, however you want to call it, horse rider interaction, is something that's evolved over thousands of years. Um, and thus, traditions are very strong, and I think we need to acknowledge those. We can't sort of break them down over the number of a few years, but it needs to be a steady process. So I think lots more people are becoming more aware of it, becoming more interested in it, but then also, you know, old habits die hard, and that particularly applies to people. So I think, you know, there's some progress to be made, but I do think that we also need to make a greater effort to really translate it all into daily practice. 
do you find that different disciplines are more accepting of the equitation science research than, than other disciplines? Well, I think in recent years, we focused a lot on dressage. Um, so that means that perhaps in many ways, uh, dressage riders have become perhaps a little bit more aware. Part, part of that is, for example, the Global Dressage Forum, which is quite a big thing. This is, this is the European Global Dressage Forum, because there's also an American Global Dressage Forum. But the, the Global Dressage Forum here that originated from the Netherlands, um, Andrew McLean, who's the vice president of ISIS, actually sits on the board of the Global Dressage Forum. So that means that a lot of what we do actually infiltrates the dressage community, which is great. So in that sense, I think it was just a natural pro process that's happened that way. But that's not to say that the other disciplines aren't interested. And, and now in recent years, um, Helia, I, I think we can say that we've tried to focus much more also on the other disciplines. Yes. Haley, do you find that different um, countries are more accepting? I know in the U.S. we have some confusion with the word equitation because equitation to us is equitation over fences or uh, stock seat equitation at a horse show um, where we're being judged on on how well we ride or or our position while we're riding. Do you find that confusion to be more so in the U.S.? Or is that just a conclusion I that I've come to? <laughs> I think it probably is more so in the US because you have the word equitation as part of a title for for something um in that in that sense. But I mean just taking it sort of down to the, the real local level, um in I mean in, in the in the UK things have always been done quite traditionally, you know, sort of regardless of discipline really. And I'm sort of thinking in terms of education and there's been a lot of work to um to I, I don't really want to say infiltrate. It's not quite the word I mean, but to to increase awareness, just at sort of you know very basic education level, that um, you know perhaps some of the way kids these days are taught, um, it's been done very traditionally under the British Horse Society um, and other sort of organisations, where you know any adopting of any of the findings that that we're coming up with and perhaps training of the children a little bit more about how horses learn and so on and you know what it is to be a horse and so on uh, you know there's been a lot of work going on at that level and it is it's taking some time for it just to become sort of it, it's not that it's not being accepted but to be integrated with the of, of doing things that have been around for, for an awful for an awful long time so you know even even in our own institution because you know most of us are attached to to a college or, or something in, in some way you know, even, even that can be quite difficult. And it's not for the want of trying and for people being anti. It's just very, it's a very different mindset, really. Um, because tradition, tradition is tradition. It's quite hard to break some of those things. We have a question that's come in from our live audience. Uh, John is in New Jersey. And John wants to know how much time should you spend bonding with your horse before riding him for the first time? What is the importance of horse rider bond in equitation science. Um, Haley, do you want to start with that one? Um, yeah, that's that's what we call a, a how long is a piece of string question. <laughs> um, I, I think um, that the, the sensible answer to that would be, as, you know, I, I don't think there's, there's a specific amount of time. There's not really a textbook answer that says you must spend a week doing this and then a week doing the, the other and so on. 
I know I personally absolutely love doing the groundwork and with with my own youngsters I've I've spent a lot of time doing sort of in hand stuff and getting to know them and then them to know me perhaps more importantly before sort of, you know, backing them and getting on and doing doing various different um things. But they are they are all individuals at the end of the day, just like we are and um I mean I've been lucky that there's been no pressure to do anything within a certain time frame. Um but I think that once you've established a relationship where you feel sufficiently secure and you know that the horse is, the horse is aware of you and your role in his life, um, and that's not sort of meant in a dominating kind of way, just you know wh- where you are, what the goalposts are, really. Then, then you you know you will know when is is the right time to do that. I I do know some people that you know they they've educated their their youngsters through using education science and just, you know, really understanding how the horse learns and stuff, and, and they've literally got on and ridden them away within three days of starting their training, whereas others have taken months because they've not felt it's been quite right. So, it, yeah, so it's a bit of a difficult one, and I think that's a bit of a non-answer, but I would hate to be able to say, you must do a week of this, a week of that, and then off you go, did it, because um, I think that could be quite dangerous. Okay. We have another question from our live audience. And Inga, I'm going to give this one to you. This is from Kathy in Ontario. She says, the ISIS conference that you mentioned, is it open for riders, trainers, coaches, etc.? If so, where is it going to be held next year? Sorry, sorry, I got my tongue all in a twist there. Um, it absolutely is open to, to everybody to attend. And next year, it's going to be in Canada. So I guess uh, for you guys, that at least saves you from flying across the pond. And um, for information, you can uh, check out our website, which is www.equitationscience.com, and you'll find information on uh, conferences and how to attend. Um, we also always organize a practical day um, where people can really see how we try and apply principles of equitation science into daily horse training and I mean that always depends on the organizing country of how they do this but we tend to always do it so um, so it'd be great to to see you there um, and it is a great conference I got to go last year and, and learned a lot at that um, as a writer as well uh, as a reporter um, our next question is from our live audience it's Thomas in California and Haley I'm going to send this to your direction Thomas is asking about natural horsemanship um, he says that in modern day natural horsemanship in the United States it's regarded as behavior modification and that uh, laying a horse down has been coined to some as the end-all be-all or a hard reboot of that horse and its other issues. He says, I understand that the flight response has been controlled because the horse is unable to move when it's been laid down, but uh, he would like to know what else could be going on in the horse's brain when that's happening. Okay. Um, I I do have concerns about some some of those, um, you know, the, the lying down kind of practice, um, because we we do know quite a lot in other species, actually in laboratory situations, um, but also in, in the field where they're actually demonstrating something called learned helplessness, which is where you have an animal who, um, or an individual, who doesn't try to escape because through their training they've realised that they, that they can't, it's not possible, and then 
sort of after after a, an amount of time, what you find is even if they're in a situation where they could get up and escape or avoid something that they don't particularly like, they don't bother because they've actually learned that there's no point. Um, so with with things um, you know that involves actually getting the animal to do something, it's not necessarily something that you would normally do um, as part of your sort of normal riding or in hand work. Um, I do have concerns because you've actually manipulated the, the animal into behaving in a certain way, which, you know, it appears nice that they've, you know, that they've laid down for us and they're happy to stay there. But my question is, are they really happy to stay there? Or have we inadvertently trained them to do that um, through using a method that we probably haven't realised that, that we've sort of done to them? Um, and I, I do... I do worry, I do have concerns about that. I'd be lying if I, if I said I, I didn't. Um, I think the thing to remember, whatever kind of um, approach, whether it's natural horsemanship or any of the other various things that are around, at the end of the day, we have to remember that the horse is the horse. We, you know, we, we, we do have a bond with them, but the relationship that we develop them should be based on our understanding of how they learn what their limitations are and you know we know that they they can do certain things and they can't do a certain other things and not to place unreasonable expectations on them and also not to sort of go down the line of you know you, you'll stay there and you'll do this because you know we're we're basically trying to replace their leader or you know assume an equine role when actually we're not an equine we're human unfortunately for, for many <laughs> Um, our next question is for you, Haley, and it's from Karen in Colorado. And Karen wants to know if or how uh, wind sucking can be prevented in a horse, wind sucking or cribbing. Okay, um, that, that's, um, that's an interesting one because wh whatever you read about it, there's always lots of conflicting um, information. I think generally we we need to go back or ideally we need to go back to what's the cause of um crib, we call cribbing or, or wind sucking and um, i know they're different things but quite often you might find there's a similar sort of cause um that in itself is really difficult because quite often you find that these things just happen and you're not able to identify the cause and it could be that you know when you bought the horse the horse is fine then all of a sudden He's shown his behaviour, he's always shown that, but you've not known the horse since the day he was born. Um, so the, the question then moves on to, actually, should you try to prevent it? Quite often, um, these behaviours occur because of how we keep the horses, but equally, um, you, you can find that they do it anyway as a coping mechanism, and because it's become an established behaviour, so even if you did know the cause and take away the cause, you would probably find that the horse would still still do this this behaviour and there's some other behaviours that have similar sort of outcomes. So then the question becomes, is it actually right to stop them from doing it? Because if it is a coping mechanism, you're taking away their coping mechanism. So, you know, there there then is this sort of you go into the into the sort of aspects of, of the five freedoms and things where you start saying, well, performing behaviours sort of which I know it's not exactly a natural behaviour but it's become a behaviour for that for that horse. Um, quite a lot of people are now looking into sort of other things as well. Um, it seems to be associated with things like gastric ulcers. 
Um, there's still quite a lot of debate about what causes what, which way round it is. And if you give the horse um, sort of the equivalent to indigestion, release of antacids, then the the quibbing and the wind sucking may abate a little bit. But there may be other causes, and that's just a sort of temporary abatement, really. Um, so I I think. I don't think there is a sort of, you know, you can't say you can stop it by doing this. You can put a collar on or, you know, one of these sort of big quitting cradle things. But to be honest, I don't necessarily know if that's the right thing to do. Because if there is a need to do it, you're just squashing the behaviour that is actually helping that horse to cope. Um, our next question is for Inga, and it's from Liz in California. And Liz wants to know, what is the best riding position for going up and down hills on a horse? Should you lean forward up hills and back when going down, or just stay neutral? Brace against the stirrups on the upper leg um, in the saddle going down hills, or not? Um, do we have any what? research on that? Well, um, not so much really on, on going up and down, but I think the most important thing to remember here, and, and a lot of the research that looks at rider positioning, has, has really tried to, to identify, okay, so what's the optimal position? But most importantly is, uh, what's the rider's job when he or she sits on top? Um, if we now just look at it purely from a biomechanical point of view, and that is to essentially not hinder the horse and help the horse to stay in balance. Now that also means that the rider has to stay in balance. Now, if we if we simply look at it from from that point of view, it makes it actually quite simple. Um, it obviously depends on on the type of slope. You know, if if you're moving uphill or if you're moving downhill, and it, and it, it you know the slope's very gradual, um, then in many ways you don't have to actually have to lean either way. The most important thing is that you actually support your weight um, by yourself. Um, that you are staying aligned uh, over your heels so that you can balance yourself and that you don't make it harder for your horse. Secondly, the horse propels itself forward uh, when we're riding it, preferably from behind, so through its hind quarters. And that's really how we can start to achieve self-courage, um, which is slightly opposite to how the horse would pro propel itself forward naturally, namely primarily through you know pulling itself forward from the front legs, if you like, rather than pushing from behind. But the minute we sit on top, because the added uh, weight of the ride on top means that for the horse, in order to sustain self-carriage, it needs to shift, shift its weight, needs to take on, push through from behind. Now, if that happens, the rider really needs to stay centrally adjusted over the horse. So going up and down hill basically means that if you are, for example, leaning forward, what you're doing is you're putting added weight onto the horse's front, making it that much harder for the horse to stay in balance. If you're riding uh, downhill and you're really leaning backwards, um, that might mean that once again you're imbalancing your horse. So the best thing really, the best bit, bit of advice, and also if we sort of look at some of the research that's been done on positioning, is for the rider to to try and support his or, her, uh, his or her own weight in the saddle and staying balanced over the horse's center of gravity. and But that actually also puts the impetus on the rider. And now we're talking sort of core stability. The rider also needs to be fit enough to carry him or herself. So not just sort of putting it on the horse, come on, guy, you know, you're going to carry me now up and down this hill. So 
rather than sort of thinking how far forward do I have to lean, try and stay in balance and try and figure out at what point can my horse actually carry me without losing balance. Our next question is from Karen in our live audience, and Haley, she wants to know what the five freedoms are that you've been referring to. Okay, um, the five freedoms um, basically came from um, the, um, there's a report called the Bramble Report issued in 1965, which was looking into the um, welfare farmed animals. Um, it's, it's a very kind of um, official um, document, um, a government-issued thing, uh, which then was adopted by the Farm Animal Welfare Council, and they built on, um, there were five freedoms, five needs that were identified in, in the report. So basically what they, they are um, are things like um, freedom from pain, um, freedom to um, express natural behaviours, um, and then also things like um, freedom from discomfort, and then the ability to always have food and water and things like that. Um, what you'll find now that is any, any welfare organisation will, will have um, something which is built around the five freedoms or the five needs. Now, the, the interesting thing with, with those is that when they were first um, developed, they, the first the four freedoms were about the avoiding of negative states, so avoiding pain, avoiding discomfort, avoiding the fact that an animal might not have food or water and be thirsty and those sorts of things. And then there was just the one positive one which was able to, to, to look at their, um, you know, to do their natural behaviour. Now what was quite interesting is that that was modified um, in some areas um, at a later date, sort of in the early 80s, by people such as Dr. Mark Kylie Worthington, who said they should be able to express their normal behaviours as long as it doesn't impact on others. So that's quite quite an interesting thing that kind of gets overlooked at um, at times. But basically, it's a little set of rules that underpins any welfare assessment of any species, any individual, in any environment, really. Uh, we have another question from our live audience, and Haley, I'm going to give this one to you. It's from uh, Camille in Arizona, and Camille wants to know what you think of clicker training horses. Um, I, th I think um, it, it's basically um, an adaptation of um, our sort of general conditioning um, processes that we go through with, with horses um, and, and indeed any other species. Um, I, I think it's a great um, great tool. It's basically your your click becomes a secondary reinforcer so you don't have to keep giving food treats all the time. I think with um as with any any training method at all, it, it has it has its place. I think it's extremely useful in situations when you want to do things with horses when you're not actually in physical contact with them. Um but again um it it can it can be problematic. For example, if people overdo the treats in the in the in the training stage. Um, again, you know, in in the right hands, it can be it can be a fantastic tool, and it can actually stop you getting into this kind of over the top positive reinforcement through giving horses treats, which then leads to bargy horses and nippy horses and all the sorts of things that we don't really like um, happening. So yeah, it's it's useful. So, can I ask both of you, do you feed horses treats from your hands? I might be putting you on the spot a little bit. <laughs> um, well, I've got two horses at the moment. Well, a horse and a half, um, a horse and a Shetland. 
who are both um, just been diagnosed with Cushing, so we're on the real trying to avoid getting, getting laminitis, so they don't get anything like that from me oh, at the moment. I bet, <laughs> They're I not happy. sad. <laughs> <laughs> in the old days, they, they did have um, treats, and they may have treats again in, in the winter, but it's, it's only in, in moderation, and, and they kind of know the rules. You know, they get a treat when I decide to give them one, not you don't come and help yourself. <laughs> and Inga? Mm, I only use it as a reinforcer, really. Um, my mare can be quite bargy and quite nippy, exactly what Hayley just described, so I, I tend to avoid it. Um, having said that, um, I do use it if she's learning a new task, and then and then I'm, I'll literally use it as a positive reinforcer. But I don't give it as treats, if that makes sense. You know, I don't sort of give it after she's worked or anything like that, literally just as a positive reinforcer. Okay. And then so I try to be as quick as possible. <laughs> absolutely, within two seconds. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so when my horse gives me his sweet look on his face and I feed him a treat, he's just trained me to give him a treat rather than the other way around. <laughs> that's, that's one of those huge training who moments. <laughs> yeah. um, I have a question for you, Inga. Uh, Chris in Colorado says that uh, he has a second-level dressage horse that seems to memorize exercises. If I do one on one side, it feels like he anticipates the pattern going the other direction. Is he memorizing and understanding the pattern step-by-step, or am I giving him cues as a rider? Probably a little bit of both. Um, For starters, I mean, horses are great at memorizing tasks, and that includes uh, patterns of, of tests or, you know, um, whether that be Western or dressage or, or, or whichever. Um, on the other hand, though, because riders, especially at a more advanced level, we come to what we call automated learning. So essentially that's uh, unconscious uh, proficiency. Now that basically means that, and, and I, I think our, our, uh, the, the question here already almost answers itself. At that point, when we've become automated in performing certain tasks, we're not even aware that we're doing it. And if we're riding horses, we, we learn to give certain cues, certain aids to the horse when we perform it. And then, well, you know, when we change hands, when we change the rein, we're going to be um, applying, we're already thinking, okay, what am I going to do next? And our body already responds to that because we've taught ourselves to give the aid on the basis of, you know, our inner command. You know, I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to ride shoulder in. And if I've done this several times over, um, my my um, motor my motor response, so how my body reacts to that command, becomes automated. So immediately I'm going to give a little bit more bend to the inside, you know, put on my inside leg, that sort of thing. So it's quite so it's probably a bit of a combination of both, especially mm-hmm. if you keep repeating it. You know, for example, you always start off because we're also creature of habit. So we always start off perhaps on one rein, and then we do the exercise two or three times, and then we move across and do it on the other rein. Now, so our our own bodies have got used to doing this. So you know, so the minute you sort of change the rein, you're already thinking right, and now I'm going to do this. On the other way, on on the other end, your body starts to respond. But because you've already done it several times over, your horse is also starting to recognise it. So if because because really what we don't want in a competitive situation really is we don't want the horse to anticipate. In order to sort of avoid that, um, it's really important for you as a rider that you're very clear that 
You give the aid and your horse responds to your aid when you want to give it. And that might mean sometimes doing things a little bit differently, um, doing surprising yourself in the training so that perhaps you ride a transition a little bit more frequently or that you change the rein uh, at a different place and that you're really strict with yourself. Um, and only when you're strict with yourself can you then also require your horse to be strict, uh, to, to respond accordingly. That makes me think of my ride earlier today, and I didn't do that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my horse thought he should walk instead of counter canter, and I just went, okay. <laughs> so, yeah, but see, see, this is where the rider comes in. That's why it's also so important. I mean, you know, it's all fair and well that we say, you know, our horses have to be obedient, you know, in the nicest possible way, that they have to respond to us. But the impetus is also on us to be strict with ourselves. And to be honest, that can be really quite tough because we're also creature of habit. And we do it because we enjoy it, you know, and we want to have a nice stress-free time. But if we want to take training seriously, we have to be really strict with ourselves. Having said that, I'm not very strict with myself all of the time either. <laughs> I think, can, can, can I just, just add something to that, Inge? Because I think, you know, you, something that really joins all that together is you're talking about um, being strict with ourselves. We have to be consistent with ourselves in order to give the horse the consistent signals, don't we? Yes, absolutely. So it all, you know, and, it's and consistency and avoiding fear and conflict and all the other things that cause these things to go wrong. Yeah, and that's why, and that's why the rider psychology, um, <laughs> that, that's why the rider psychology is also quite important. That because only if we can achieve a, um, a consistent frame of mind can we expect to always give the same consistent kind of aid, and then expect the horse to respond consistently. And I would say that watching my trainer ride, that's the difference between her and the rest of us, is that she is completely consistent with her horses as a professional um, and consistent in her riding. So I'm going to take that to the barn. Thank you for that bit. Um, <laughs> our next uh, question is for Haley, and it's uh, Dee in Michigan. And Dee says that a lot of people say horses should be outside as much as possible. But my 18-year-old gelding seems to genuinely enjoy coming into his roomy stall after being turned out for the day or for the night, depending on, on the time of year. He has a companion that he can play with um, between the stall bars. Um, is it... Is this an okay situation? Do we have find that horses maybe like to come in to their yeah, stalls? Yeah, I mean, to, to be honest, I think this is something I kind of almost started answering in, in a previous one where, you know, you're saying if, if your horse has the choice, um, you know, sometimes if you've given them the choice, they do they do come in and, and stand, stand in, even though the door's open and they can go out into the field or the yard or, or whatever. And, I, you know, I would say that at, at 18... Um, if that's what he wants to do, then, you know, then that's fine. And he's, he's got a companion, um, and, you know, it's good that they can contact each other through, um, you know, through the, the area between, between their stalls. Um, I, you know, what, what I'd say with a horse at that age, you probably wouldn't want to just suddenly say, no, you must live out forever 24-7, because he's obviously accustomed to it, and, and, you know, the, the owner, um, you know, you, you know your horse and you, you know, you're, you're not seeing any signs that he's getting stiff by being in, um, and that sort of thing. You know, a lot of, I think a lot of people do the sort of part, part in, part out, depending on the time of, of year. Um, over here, what, what you find is that the horses, um, 
will, you know, unless they're lucky enough to just be able to come and go as they please. They, they tend to be in at night in the winter and in and in the day in the summer. So, um, you know, again, it's just balancing the needs. And if you're if you're if you're lucky enough to be able to give your horses the choice, then then that's that's great. But you know, I'm, the only thing that I would watch out for with an older horse, and I, I say because I have a 23-year-old one, um, is that. You know, if they are made to come in and stay in for for a long time, they they can stiffen up um, and so on. But from the description you've given, it sounds like a good situation. Well, we are out of time tonight. Um, but before before we close, and I want to let you two off the line because I think it's two and three a.m. Uh, where you each are right now. Um, but really quickly, I would like to ask, uh, starting with Inga. What is the one thing that you hope the audience takes away from our conversation tonight about equitation science and how that could apply to their daily interactions with their horses? Well, the one thing to me is, um, obviously I'm talking from a rider perspective because I know that Haley is going to talk from a horse perspective. Um, (laughs) How you feel and what you think as a rider does affect your behavior and how you move your body. So... I guess I've already said this. In order to make the most from your training and to, to get the most enjoyment, performance, whatever you want out of your horse, and also make sure that you preserve his welfare, try and work on maintaining an optimal frame of mind for yourself so that you can be consistent in what you ask your horse to do. Okay. And Haley. Okay, and I knew she would do a rider one, so I'm doing a horse one. No, seriously. Um, my, mine really, in a nutshell, is to um, not have unrealistic expectations of your horse um, in terms of his um, mental capacity as much as his physical capacity and ability. And in order to do that, to be very clear with your training and just take the time to just look at some very basic principles of learning theory to understand how the horse learns. Um, And by understanding how learning theory is, I mean, it's, it's not a magic solution. It's something that's been in psychology textbooks for hundreds of years. Then you can probably simplify the learning, make things clearer for the horse, less confusing, and better for everybody all round horses, riders, handlers, and anybody else in between. Okay. Well, thank you both uh, for joining us tonight. And if anyone's listening and would like to learn more, we have gathered some editor's picks on thehorse.com of equitation science resources. If you go to thehorse.com slash equitation science resources, you'll find uh, an article with links to those additional resources. Uh, Thank you, ladies, for joining us.